Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Good afternoon. My name is uh, Chris. I'm part of the team here at Lagan Valley Vineyard. My grandmother is here. She can confirm this is not her jumper. It is actually mine. Um, she can genuinely confirm that. No lies in church. Um, Welcome to Langley Vineyard. If you're a guest or a visitor, we love that you're with us. We love that you're in this space on a Sunday afternoon. Um, we are in the middle of a series in Ruth. We are picking up from Ruth 3 today. Uh, I'm going to ask one of our Compass students, shout out Compass students, uh, Chloe Boyd, to come up um, to read the passage. You come on up. Um, Chloe asked me if she had creative license to read today's scripture. I'm not sure what that means. If you're able, why don't you stand? Um, we're in Ruth chapter 3. In the Black Bibles, that is page 180. And uh, Chloe is going to read it for us uh, as we read God's Word. Come Holy Spirit. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose woman you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. (laughs) I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, (laughs) he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. (laughs) I've lost my place. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it is true (laughs) that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, He poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and replied, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Thank you, Chloe. You can grab your seats. 
So I, I came to faith and decided to follow Jesus at the age of 17. And um, it's fair to say those early years, I had a lot to learn. There was a lot of mistakes and a lot of learning. And my eyes were open to a lot of different things when it came to faith. I was going to summer camps and mission trips and all that kind of stuff. And I stumbled across something as a 17-year-old single, 18-year-old single male that is Christian pickup lines, right? So you might not know this, but there is a genre of pickup lines that are Christian pickup lines. Hands up if you've used a Christian pickup line. I super, <laughs> I super haven't either. Um, but I'm going to help some of you guys out today. So if you're single here, I've got some pickup lines. Don't say we don't do anything for you here at this community. We've got something for you in store. So we're going to start off nice and breezy. We've got like four or five. We'll, sort, we'll kind of start off breezy and we'll see where we kind of go from there. You're, you're free to react how you want to. And uh, you're also free to make notes. Um, Benji Baird. <laughs> All right, we'll start off breezy. Uh, what's your name and number so I can add you to my prayer list? <laughs> Simple, but effective. <laughs> now I know why Solomon had 700 wives, because he never met you. It's a little bit, it's biblical. I'm no Joseph, but perhaps you can interpret the dreams I've been having of you lately. We'll leave that one there. The word says, give drink to those who are thirsty and feed the hungry. So how about dinner? It's okay. And then lastly, God commands us to be fruitful and multiply. I think we'll cut that one there. (laughs) We find ourselves in Ruth 3 right now. And it's far worse than a cheesy Christian pickup line. We find ourselves in the middle of a situation where some quite prescriptive dating advice or courting advice has been given to Ruth. In Ruth 3, we see uh, way more than what meets the eye when we first read it. We're in the middle of a series called Ruth, a story of loyal love. Dana kicked us off with this big idea that God is committed to us. After that, James also uh, opened up Ruth 2, where he talked about risk and living into the purposes of God for other people. And I find myself at chapter 3. Now, I just want to be really clear. Like, chapter 3 in Ruth, it's like you get, there's four chapters. This is easily the worst one to get, okay? So whoever was picking, like, who got to preach on what, like, they're playing favorites, and I'm not it, okay? (laughs) So it's super complex. It's super tense, but there is so much in it that we can learn from inside this. And just as Chloe has read, what I'm going to do over the next few moments, I'd love to walk us through the passage, unpacking what this actually means. Then I'd love to leave us with one kind of idea and then two kind of principles that we can learn from it as we come to respond. To do that, nobody really preaches on Ruth 3 by itself. It's kind of on a cliffhanger. So you usually teach on Ruth 2, Ruth 3, and Ruth 4. I'm going to kind of steal a wee bit from both. Hannah, don't worry, I'm not digging too much into chapter 4. You've got loads to unpack there too. But we know this already from this story. The book of Ruth is a story of two widows, Naomi from Bethlehem and Ruth the Moabite. These two widows have returned back to Bethlehem in order to survive. They're here because they just want to make it through. And as we discovered last week in Ruth 2, uh, from the book of Deuteronomy, they had a right to glean off the fields of those who were wealthy or who were, who were rich in order to survive. And so we see Ruth in chapter 2 going to Boaz's field to glean off the crops. 
law permitted them to do this. And by chance, she ends up in Boaz's field. Ruth goes looking for barley, and she finds Boaz. I'm not unpacking this this morning, but there's a principle here in play that when you lay down your life for the sake of God's kingdom and for other people, often his purposes and plans come running towards us. It's the reference in Matthew where it talks about a field where there is treasure. There's more than just what lies there as we lean in and go in the direction that God is leading us into. Boaz is a wealthy, prominent, middle-aged man. He's like the Ryan Gosling of Bethlehem, only he's single. I'm not actually sure if Ryan Gosling is single or not. He's married? All right. Some of you guys are very disappointed. But he's a wealthy man. He has a reputation that precedes him. And as Ruth comes into his field in, in, in chapter two, we discover that Ruth catches Boaz's eye. And they have a conversation where he speaks over her that she would be richly rewarded by the God of Israel for her loyalty to Naomi. She's a Moabite, and this is what uh, he speaks over, that she would get a full reward. See, Boaz has a reputation that precedes him. People know who he is um, for all the right reasons. He's kind of like that person who is in, I don't know what age they are, but they're still single. Nobody can quite figure out why they're still single. He's got everything going for him, but yet he's still in the situation and single. And so Naomi decides to play Cupid. She decides to play matchmaker. She builds up this idea, this plan where she's able to orchestrate some sort of interaction between Boaz and Ruth. And so in verse 2, as we've read, we get an indication of the beginning of this plan, that as Boaz is winnowing barley, as he is at the threshing floor, Naomi tells Ruth, who also understands that Boaz is a relative of Naomi. So there's loads of things in play there where we talked about this last week, where Boaz can be their redeemer. He can restore the family name. He can restore them the inheritance that have been taken from them. In many ways, everything that they've lost through pain, Boaz is an indicator that it can be given back and in a tenfold. And so we have this scene where she's told to go to the threshing floor. And for Naomi, who's making this plan, she understands that this is more, this is more than just survival. Boaz is actually their salvation. And she could also, he can also marry Ruth. And so her late husband's name wouldn't be lost. It would live on. And so that night, as Boaz at the threshing floor, this is Naomi's instructions to Ruth. Take a bath, get your best clothes on, get whatever you need to do, tone tan, fit and ready. Shout out Katie, Katie Perry. Like they, she's ready to walk in in her best gear, presented in the most perfect way. She's smelling good. She's got everything done and she's ready to go. And she instructs her, once the grain is piled up, once the work is done and he's tired, he's going to lie down. And there's a festival tradition where Boaz will eat and drink till he's merry and then he will sleep in the field. And the instruction to Ruth is know where Boaz is, but don't make yourself known. Know where he lies down to sleep, but don't make yourself known at least just yet. And when he's fallen asleep at midnight, Go to him, and we read in the script we've just read, uncover the garment. Other passages talk about uncovering the feet. Uncover the feet, so that, and then Boaz will tell you what to do. The cold air would brush by his feet and would wake him up. And listen, we don't grasp this fully by just reading this at one moment, but this is incredibly full of insane tension. To uncover the feet wasn't just to wake him up for a glass of water. There was way more going on in this moment than we realize. And this is a dangerous plan. Ruth is a Moabite. 
She is someone who's pushed as an outcast to the edge of society. And she's told to go into the situation that is both dangerous and equally delicate and to execute a plan that she's been given by Naomi. If this is a movie, if this is on Netflix, this is like 15 at least, all right? Like you're not showing teenagers this, you're not getting away with it. Like the tension in it is so much more than we realize. Boaz is a relative. Naomi knows what kind of guy he is. Naomi is counting on Ruth to execute on the plan. And Naomi is also counting on Boaz to act honorably. The threshing floor would have been outside, so Ruth waits in the shadows. She's hiding and waiting for the work to be done, for them to begin to engage in the harvest ritual. And just as everyone has ate and drank and has went to sleep, she knows where Boaz is. She goes to him, uncovers his feet and lays by him. And at midnight, he turns over. Boaz went to sleep and there was no woman. He wakes up and there is a woman. Like, good luck explaining that. It's orchestrated by Naomi. You see, Boaz doesn't recognize Ruth in the moment. And so asks, who are you? She responds, I'm Ruth, your maid servant. And then in verse nine, you read this. It's from a different translation. Boaz says, what do you want, Ruth? Ruth says, spread your wing over your maidservant for you are redeeming kinsmen, or you are redeeming guardian. See, in the previous chapter that James uh, unpacked for us last week, in chapter two, while Boaz is in the field with Ruth, he speaks a blessing over her that she would receive a full reward from Yahweh, the God of Israel. And what Boaz says to Ruth the Moabite causes an interesting problem with the Old Testament. You see, the Torah, even throughout Deuteronomy, made it really clear that you, if you had a Moabite in your family, even 10 generations removed, you were severed, you were cut off from any sort of inheritance from the God of Israel. Your protection was severed from that. And here's Ruth, a full-blooded Moabite. And he speaks over her that the God of Israel would have a full reward, not a part reward, but a full reward for her. See, this is an important part of the story. Because Boaz and also the author of Ruth share a theology of God's love that is outrageously generous. It is beyond what we can comprehend that no matter what has been said or has been said, what, what customs have been deemed in their local area, they believe that it extends even to Moabite widows. They are cultural outsiders, yet God's love reaches towards them. No longer just gleaning off scraps in chapter two, but living into a full reward. Now, this woman who's laid by Boaz at night asks him to spread his wing. Ruth is asking for his hand in marriage. This is a pickup line that I do not recommend. That's what she's asking in a very subtle way. This is what she's asking. That might seem strange to us as when we read the Bible. And there's a law that's in play here called the Leverite marriage, and where there's rights to widows that are inside the clan of Israel. And it's important to know this when we're reading Old Testament texts, that they're not written to us. They're written into a different context, but they are written for us. And so when we dig into it, we can uncover truth that we can't otherwise skimming over. And so here at night, here at night Ruth asks, Boaz, can you spread your wing? Boaz's response is that he is absolutely blown away by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. It's amazing to him that she has stayed with her mother-in-law even when her sister went back home. She stayed and her desire, Ruth's desire to keep the family name alive, to keep inheritance in the family, 
is what blows Boaz away. And he says that he's happy that Ruth didn't just run away with whatever was next. And the reference to that is other young men, the immediate thing that she could probably turn to, that she actually sought out something different to provide and be loyal to her widow mother-in-law. And because of this, Boaz tells her that she's commendable, that she's a worthy woman, echoes of Proverbs 31. And so he says, you're a worthy woman. Whatever you ask, I will do. And so the problem is in that the ask, there's another issue. You see, Boaz is more of like a second cousin, not a first cousin. And the way this redemption thing works is that it's to the next of kin. So there's a first cousin in the equation. He has the right to it that Boaz can't overstep. And so he tells her, I will go to that relative tomorrow. I will talk with him. And if he is not willing, I will be willing. Ruth awakens in the morning and it's getting bright. Starting to look a little bit sketchy. He wants to avoid any sort of walk of shame or whatever else is going on. And so Boaz sends her on her way. She returns back to Naomi. But before she goes, six piles, six measures of grain are placed into Ruth's hand. This is, again, another important thing to realize, that there's been a promise spoken, but that has not came to fulfillment. Yet in the gap of promise and fulfillment, we see provision. And that is true also of kingdom dynamics, that when God speaks promise into our lives, and also when we haven't seen it come to complete fruition, God still is the God who provides for us in that in-between tension. And so they part ways from the threshing floor. Boaz goes to tend to him at her. Ruth goes home. Naomi's waiting for Ruth as she comes home. And the moment she comes in through the door, she asks the question. She doesn't ask the question of what's going on. She actually asks the question much more personally. She said, whose are you? She's asking, are you married or are you not? And Ruth's response is kind of like, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Like there was this, this moment, I think I executed the plan. I think he received it well, but like um, he's going off to kind of fix it and I'm not really sure what that means. Like there's no doubt that we can assume in this text that Ruth is left with some kind of hope, but also some kind of confusion Things are not crystal clear in this moment. And then Naomi, who in chapter one, if you remember, who tells us to call her bitter because she has fallen out with God so much. She's the one at the end of chapter three, as this scene closes, who has actually a confidence in God as their redeemer and Boaz as their redeemer. Naomi's plan is based off her confidence in Boaz. Ruth, off the back of risk, finds herself somewhere between promise and the fulfillment of that. And Boaz, well, he's on a mission to try to figure this out quickly. And we know what comes next, and I'm, I'm not going to dive into it too much, but it's important that we understand this in terms of the whole range of this story. But the long story short is Boaz shows up at the city gates. They have an interaction with the first cousin. He's married, so that's complicated. So Boaz has the right, and he does redeem Ruth. And I'll teach him that way better than what I've just summarized inside 20 seconds next week. And so we know the end of the story. Boaz takes Ruth to be her wife, his wife. And we understand also that inside this context, this is pointing towards something else, that the kinsman redeemer, the great defender, the one who is the guardian, Boaz, well, he's an image of Jesus, the one who is to come for us. 
And in this moment, their name is restored, their legacy is intact, and they live into the inheritance that is theirs. And there's so many things that we can draw from this. In fact, if you read commentators on this, you'll find almost different opinions on all of these things inside Ruth. It is incredibly complex, but I want to unpack a few ideas before we go today. The first one is friendship. And often it gets missed in this story is the friendship between Naomi and Ruth. We know this in hindsight. Ruth and Boaz have a baby called Obed. Obed has a baby called Jesse. Jesse has a baby called David, who is the great king, the giant killer, David. David is in the lineage of Jesus. He's associated in the lineage with Jesus. And if we take a few steps back, David's great-grandmother is Ruth. And so we see the story of redemption And it is founded or at least deeply impacted by the friendship of two widows. And sometimes we talk about friendship as just something that is nice for us. But actually, friendship can be a mode of grace in which Jesus can use to impact the world around us. Friendship is complicated for all sorts of reasons. I find it easy at times in my life to make friends. I've at times found it more difficult to make friends. I have regrets when it comes to friendships that have drifted. I've been hurt, deeply hurt in friendships, and I've also been the person who's deeply hurt other people in friendships. And when you're young, friendship is easy. Even into your 20s, friendship is easy. It's based off two things, convenience and chemistry. And so who you get along with and who's around you, typically that'll be an indicator of your friendship and how it begins. But that will not sustain you as you step into your 30s. In fact, it gets way more complicated when you get into your 30s. Friendship doesn't become about chemistry or convenience. It becomes about commitment, who you're committing to do life with. And in hindsight, and something that we can maybe assume is that one of Jesus' greatest miracles, actually, if you're around the age of 30 or older, one of Jesus' greatest miracles was having 12 close friends at the age of 30. That if you read stats around friendship and loneliness right now, we are existing in a time when that is becoming few and few and far between. And it is true, if God wants to bless your life, often he will use people. James touched on this and the purposes of God through us, partnering with us. And their friendship, Ruth and Naomi's, deeply affects us. And so the question beckons, who is your Naomi? Or who are you being Naomi to? Or who is your Ruth? Ruth didn't walk away when it got hard. She stayed. She had a sense of responsibility, not entitlement. She also experienced deep pain and loss, yet she didn't just count it as a way to be bitter or entitled. She instead sought out responsibility and where she can serve and where she can help. She stayed when it got hard. See, our friendships should look different. If you want to be enriched in your life, your friendship should look different. It can't be all people that are the same age as you, that dress the same as you, if that's the case, I'm hanging about with grandmothers apparently, but, um, but it, can't, it can't all be around that. They have to be diverse. They have to be different. Whenever I um, interned for the first time at uh, my church when I was 18, I wanted to do youth stuff. That's all I wanted to do, youth stuff. And the minister at the church at the time, he's an amazing man. He brought me in for coffee into the manse and we had a chat and I started talking about what was in my heart and uh, youth ministry and this generation, all that kind of stuff. And he said, that's amazing. Like, you'll do all that on Sundays. But throughout the week, here's what I want you to do. And he gave me a list of three names and three addresses. They were uh, names of three women in that community who were in their 90s. And he was like, go visit them, bring like a fruit loaf, make them tea and read a psalm with them and just have a chat. And honestly, I was like, I was 18. I was like, I have nothing in common with these 90-year-old women. Like, what am I gonna, have you heard of Cristiano Ronaldo? What's your thoughts? You know, like, like I, have, I have nothing in common with them. 
And I went for the first week, I was pretty afraid. And what began to happen as I went through that year is it became, it became one of the most enriching experiences of my life. It was absolutely incredible. They all did try to set me up with their daughters who were like in their 50s. But we let that one pass, all right? Some prescriptive dating advice there as well. But what I'm saying is that we need to reach beyond the norms because there's, there's treasure outside of that. There's things that can enrich your life beyond your immediate circle. Our friendships should look different and they should step beyond that. Ruth didn't walk away when it got tough. In fact, she stayed and she had options to go, but she stayed. And this is important to know because I think the markers of true friendship and great friendship is those who show up when it's hard. When I think of them over the last 10 years of my life, the marker moments of friendship for me is not, not the mountaintop amazing moments where they're with me. That's amazing that they are. But it's how my friends showed up in the really hard seasons of my life or the really hard moments in my life. When they showed up, even when they disagreed with my choices, they still loved me despite of that. It's a marker of true friendship. They stabbed me in the chest, not in the back, in the chest to tell me I was being an idiot when I was being an idiot, and they held me accountable. It's a marker of true friendship because true friendship helps us stay in the story. As we discover this with Ruth and Naomi, it helps us stay in the story. The whole story is flipped on its head because of Naomi's advice and Ruth's willingness to take a risk. Naomi's no longer a widow, Ruth's no longer a widow, and their inheritance is restored. Ruth makes it clear in the beginning that she will go wherever Naomi is going, and she will die wherever she dies. Naomi believes God has abandoned her in chapter one. She says, call me bitter, because God has abandoned her. For her, God's far from being a solution. As far as she's concerned, God is actually part of the problem. That's why she is bitter. Yet at the end of chapter three, She's the one in the situation. Boaz isn't sure what's going to happen. The lowest intentions are good. Ruth returned home. She kind of feels like it went well, but she's not sure. But Naomi is the one who says, call me bitter. He has confidence in God's provision and faithfulness. And we can assume that through the friendship of Ruth staying loyal to her, she realized that actually God has not abandoned her. And the purposes of God are made evident through people. And she stays faithful to her even in the most difficult of moments. It changes her entire view upon God. These are the things often that we miss when we think friendship is just about convenience and chemistry. But when we lean into commitment, we find an abundance of fruit. Who is your Naomi? Who is holding you accountable? Now listen, accountability, when I grew up, it was all about sitting down with your youth pastor and being like, hey, where have you messed up this week? And let's not do that again. That was what accountability looked like. I thought accountability was just talk about our sin and what I've done wrong and all that kind of stuff. But actually accountability, if we unpack the word, it is holding someone account for their God-given ability. It changes the direction of focus. We understand that what gets our attention gets the direction of our lives, that we move in the direction in which our attention points towards. And so the patterns that we struggle with, they starve when we start pointing somewhere else or we start looking for barley in the field. The things that we're trying not to do, they starve because the attention is off them and onto something else. Do you have people who sit with you and say, this is what's inside of you. This is what God has placed inside of you. And even though you're going through a hard season right now, I want to hold you accountable to the promise and the voice and the plan that God has spoken into your life so that you can live into it. That is what accountability is. It is not, let's just talk about what's going wrong. It is way more than that. And we need to give people permission to speak honestly into your life. If no one's being honest with you right now, it might just be because you've given no one permission to be honest with you. Give them permission to speak honestly into your life, to stab you in the chest, not in the back. 
Secondly, we're going to skim over this, but James taught into it excellently last week. This idea of risk. The scene is full of tension. In fact, if you look even through the literary uh, chapter in the Bible, you'll discover contrast, night and day, work and rest. There's tension all inside it. It's important that we notice it. It's there for a reason, that this is a tense passage of Scripture. And Ruth steps out for the sake of redemption. And we need to be clear, this plan is risky. Ruth is a Moabite. She's a widow. She's an outcast. She's far from popular in this area, let alone safe. She is completely at risk. In fact, in chapter two, Boaz warns her, stay in my field and glean from my crops and stay away from other men. It's not just because he wants to keep her. It's because she's not safe. She's at risk. She's vulnerable. And Naomi knows that this plan is risky. Ruth understands that this plan is risky. And they're surrounded by night. And if you're familiar with darkness in the Bible, it's a metaphor for all sorts of danger. And she's to wait in the darkness, wait in the shadows, to know where Boaz is, but also not to make herself known. It's fair to assume that in this moment, Ruth is probably not full of confidence right now. She's probably pretty afraid. She's probably feeling the weight of everything that's going on right now as she leans in. And she's terrified and she's hanging on Naomi's rumored reference of what kind of guy Boaz is. And so she moves towards what is scary. We've talked about this. You're going to talk about this in tribes as well. This idea, uh, there's an analogy that's really helpful for us to understand our relationship with fear. We pray all the time, God, help us see how you see. And part of what the scripture does, part of what the Holy Spirit does, part of actually what friendships do in so many things is that when we have a revelation of who God is, it changes how we see things. It's like a contact lens. I'm wearing contact lenses right now. I can't, like if I didn't have them, it doesn't change who's sat in front of me right now. You're still here but my contact lens changes how I see you. And so when we have a lens where we can see how God sees, it doesn't change what's around us, but it does change how we interact and how we engage with it. This is why it's so important that we pray and we lean into this understanding of seeing how God sees. It changes how we see. And this idea of fear, I've always understood it, and we've talked about this before, that we are to run away from fear. What scares us is bad and we need to get away from it. And there's this analogy, I think, it's, I think it's Jason Upton, I'm not really sure where I've heard it, and I've probably shared this before, but this, I've shared it I think three times this week alone, but I think it maybe is a word for our community, is maybe a lot of you guys are feeling fearful, and maybe excited too, maybe you feel the voice of God, maybe there's lots of stuff going on. But scarecrows are created to scare away crows. But scarecrows are not real, they're impersonating something else. And so... If you stay far enough from it, you'll fly to it, you'll see a scarecrow, you'll get afraid and you'll fly away. But if you fly close enough to it, if you get close enough to see it, you'll begin to realize that the scarecrow isn't real. And what happens when we realize that the scarecrow isn't real and that all the other crows has flown away and we have a field behind that scarecrow that is full of crops or full of fruit? We begin to see the things that scare us as invitations, not things to lean out of. So if you're still afraid of scarecrows, you'll see them fly away. But if you actually realize the scarecrows, the fear isn't real. It's that irrational fear we talked about. It's actually not real. Then the things that scare us become the very markers of where actually God is leading us and guiding us. That when we dream with God and we dream about the city or your family or your workplace, and there's those things that inside that that you're afraid of, whether that's how they're going to respond or how you're made to look or whatever it is, those actual things may be the very things that God is inviting you into but we need to understand how we see fear and relate to fear in order to engage with that. 
for the sake of this story, Ruth steps into the risk. You see, we as followers of Jesus are supposed to live with a God gap in our lives. A gap that God has to fill or else we're gonna fall flat in our face. And if your life with Jesus like, doesn't have gaps where you need God to show up, then we're probably living comfortable, secluded lives with Jesus. And what's sad about that is that God can't either disappoint us or surprise us unless we leave gaps. When we leave gaps, actually, we require God to show up in situations. But also, and Andy shared about this in the previous weeks, we are denied a history with God. So when you go through stuff that scares you, and you're not sure if God's going to show up, but he does show up, that builds something in your relationship with God that holds you steady for the next thing that you're about to face. It builds a history that no matter what's said or what's going on, what voices or circumstances, you're like, well, I know God showed up the last time. So I think he's going to show up this time. And it might not be how you imagine or how you think, but when you look in hindsight, if you even do this now when you go home, in hindsight of the last 10 years, you'll begin to see the hand of God and the voice of God filling in gaps in your life where you need him to fill them in. It might not be how you thought it was going to be, but he showed up. And we are created as followers of Jesus to live with God gaps that we need him to fill or we're going to fall on our face. And Ruth is living into this right now. This plan is dangerous and it is delicate. And far more than her falling on her face, the list of things that could go wrong for Ruth in this moment is beyond comprehension. And so risk is something we're supposed to get comfortable with, comfortably uncomfortably with and to lean into. The last one is waiting. You see, we know the end of Ruth. I've touched on it briefly. We're going to talk about it next week. Chapter three is this weird chapter in the middle. It's a scene in the middle of this story where there's a plan executed, but we're not really sure how it's ended. It's a cliffhanger. And as we talked about it, Ruth's in between this idea of promise and also this idea of fulfillment. She's probably equally excited as she is scared. And maybe for some of you in this space, that's right now how you relate to Jesus. That you've had moments of encounter where you've heard his voice, you feel like he's spoken promises to you. You've maybe even seen that in part, but it hasn't came to fruition. It hasn't came to the fullness of what has been said. And you find yourself in that middle tension of waiting. And I just want to unpack this idea of waiting really quickly as we come into the land and we're going to respond together in a minute. That seasons of waiting holds things that no other season can hold. There are things that we can experience and know about God in the waiting that we can't get in any other season. The Hebrew word for waiting is this word called quiva, which literally means and references this idea of small ropes being joined together to make a strong rope. That in the Hebrew Bible, when it talks about waiting on God, the reference to waiting is weaving. So as we wait on God, he weaves himself with us. We're not passive in the waiting moment. In fact, it's, it's actually way more than just spending time. I think actually in the kingdom, it's investing time. We're investing in something. That if you're in a season of waiting right now where you've not seen God pull through, if you're in a season of waiting where even you're better or, or whatever else is going on, What's happening, if we become aware to it, is that God is weaving himself right now in your circumstance and in your situation. And he is a strong rope that weaves around you 
there are things that God can do for us in seasons of waiting that he can't do in any other season. And we need to learn what it means to be present and waiting, not passive. And to lean into his voice, into his presence, and also alongside his people to understand how God is weaving himself in our situations, in our circumstances, and in our lives. In a moment, we are gonna respond in communion. And um, if I can cheekily and humbly do this, I would like to be your Naomi this morning. And just as Naomi give conditions for Ruth to approach Boaz to uncover his feet, I want you to know that as we come to this table of communion, as we move towards Jesus in this moment, there actually is a condition as we move towards him. There is one condition and one condition only. It's not get dressed up. It's not put your best perfume on. It's not appear a certain way. The condition as we approach this table, which is way more than just symbolic, it is deeply supernatural, as we approach this table, is to come as you are. In your waiting, in your fear, in your joy, whatever that looks like, that we bring that to the feet of Jesus and we ask him, would you spread your wing over us? For you are a kind and generous and redeeming God. And he can do that for us. And when we ask, he will. You see, God can't bless a version of you. He can't bless a persona of you. He can't put blessing on how you're just appearing to other people. He can't bless a version. He can only bless you as you are, unapologetically before him. It's all he longs for is your honesty in these moments to move towards him regardless of what you're going. And as we approach this table this afternoon, we ask at the feet of Jesus, our ultimate kinsman redeemer, our ultimate guardian and defender for him to spread his wing over us. For he is a redeeming God. He's done it for our ancestors and surely he will do it for us. That he is Yahweh, the great I am. He is El Roy, the God who sees you he is El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. He is El Olam, the everlasting father. He is Jehovah Jireh, the great provider. He is Yahweh Rapha, our great healer. He is Elohim, the one who speaks life and brings life and restores things that are dead and long devastated. And when we turn to him in these moments, he cannot ignore his children. He is everything that we've longed for. He is all that you need. And he is more than we ever have dreamed of. That this love is beyond generous. And so if you're able, why don't you stand?